Welcome. Uh, it's a, a joy to have you here this afternoon. My name is Sarah Mullally and I'm the privilege, I have the privilege of being the Bishop of London. Um, can I also, uh, apart from welcoming you all generally, uh, it's uh, great to be able to welcome Jamie, Jamie Hawkey, who is the Canon Theologian for, from Westminster Abbey. So it's very good that you could join us today in what is a joint partnership, really. The um, Koinonia lectures uh, for 2022-2023 have been organised exactly as a joint partnership uh, between the Diocese of London and St Paul's Cathedral and Westminster Abbey. Uh, they are here to offer an opportunity to engage with the latest research uh, from a wide range of theological and ecclesiological thinkers. This is our first in-person event uh, having already held several on online. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for coming uh, today. It's good to see you in person. A few practicalities. Uh, the toilets are op opposite the shop if you require them. Uh, if there is uh, a fire, everybody should exit calmly via the northwest crypt door in the same way that you came in. Uh, so to our event, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to welcome Professor uh, Grace Davey uh, today. Um, Grace is the Professor Emerita, that's it, my, dys my dyslexia does wonderful things sometimes, of sociology at Exeter University, as well as a lay canon of the diocese in Europe. Um, she is a leading sociologist of religion and she has written widely on religion in the modern world. Uh, her latest publication, which I'm sure many of you have seen, is Religion in Public Life, Leveling the Ground. She is a senior advisor uh, to the Impact of Religion Research Programme at the uh, Uppsala University, Sweden, and her research interests lie in patterns of religion in Europe uh, and how to contextualise them. Grace will speak for about 30 minutes or so, and then we'll have time for questions and answers. So would you join me in welcoming Professor Grace Davey? Thank you, Bishop Sarah, so much for your welcome, and it's a real pleasure for me to be with you here. I'm so glad we can do it in person. It, it makes a difference. Um, my title is Searching Questions, plenty of those, Abundant Data, More Every Morning, it seems to me, and Partial Answers. Um, my agenda is a big one, slightly over-ambitious probably, but I hope it will help us to get started on an important debate. My starting point um, is the editing, co-editing of um, the Oxford Handbook of Religion in Europe, which I suppose is, is the most recent thing I've done, with Lucian Leuchtean, who is here, I'm really delighted to say. Um, and it was published in 21, but the, the real sort of donkey work was done well before that. These handbooks take an awful long time to go through press. And already, as we edited, as I edited the later chapters on different places in Europe, I could detect a change in mood. There was an unease developing. We were not complacent at all about how things were going. And this was before COVID and before the crisis in Ukraine, or the current crisis in Ukraine. 
And then we had, in very rapid suggestion, uh, in succession, the pandemic itself, the invasion of Ukraine, and the cost of living crisis that went together went with that, plus in the UK the death of Queen Elizabeth, uh, coinciding with abrupt changes in political leadership. The times were out of joint, no doubt. And what I really asked myself is to have several decades training in the social sciences, particularly with attention to religion, give me anything to deal with this. What are the tools and concepts that I have learned throughout my academic life? And are they of any use as this series of crises happen? And so this is where we begin. I'm going to bring on board the International Panel on Social Progress, IPISP, IPSP for short, um, because I did a lot of thinking again with Lucian on the relationship between religion and social progress. I'm not going to tell you all about it. The, the, the link is here if you want in due course to, um, to, to, to follow it up. But it taught us the persistence of religion in the modern world, the importance of context in discerning outcomes, both positive and negative, and the urgent need to enhance cultural competence, religious literacy in this area. That's an extra tool, it's a big tool, it's some 30,000 words, our chapter, in a three-volume report. But that little clip is about 1,000 words and will take you right through where you need to go. And so we find ourselves with key overlapping questions. Is it possible to reconcile in UK and elsewhere a continuing process of secularization alongside growing religious diversity. You've got to hold both. So often we talk about secularization or we talk about religious diversity. We need to keep both together. That will be my starting point. Then I'm going to think about how the Europe's churches have responded to the restrictions and opportunities of COVID. Asking you and me, is religion an additional risk in this situation, or is it an untapped resource? Or is it both? And how do we move on? The invasion of Ukraine has shone new light on the fissures within orthodoxy. It's also exposed the dangers of what I call culturalized religion. How do we cope with this? They look three very different questions. You'll find there's threads that link them. Um, they're big questions. I decided to be bold, but let's see how far we get. Okay, the changing nature of religion in Europe and the need to hold together very different factors. There is, we know, growing secularization and a steady drift towards no religion and non-belief what we call the nuns, there is marked generational change. Religion for younger people doesn't count. Religion is increasingly marginalized. What are the consequences? One of the consequences is we are losing the vocabulary and the sensitivities that we need to talk well about religion. 
That is a consequence of secularization. Growing religious diversity brought about by immigration, which is also increasing, so religious diversity is increasing, meaning that at times religion dominates debate. Just at the moment when we are losing the capacity to talk about it. It's the two things that you need to hold together. These challenging issues, and they are challenging, don't pretend it's easy to, to handle growing religious diversity. It's demanding. They're difficult to manage, and what so often emerges is an ill-informed and ill-mannered conversation. It depresses me, frankly. I'm going to pursue this by talking about one point that I developed in my professional life, and that was the notion of vicarious religion. I was working on this in the 1990s and 2000s, and in the original meaning of the term, how I looked at it, there were um, hard and soft variables in this country and across Europe of both belonging and belief. Relatively few people belonged to churches or assented to creedal belief, but there was a much bigger penumbra of people who, yes, I'm Christian, but I don't go to church. Yes, I believe in a God, um, but, but I, I don't necessarily believe in, in creedal statements. I worked on this a lot with the notions of belief and belonging and concluded that the way we were really working was that an active minority was doing something on behalf of a much larger group. Now, cathedrals, including St. Paul's, was very central in this debate. If St. Paul's or other high-profile groups of clergy and, and the big buildings they, go, they work in did something wrong, people noticed, or did something that, that deemed wrong, people noticed. Um, they cared much more than we thought. If you close a church, the people who protest are often not the people who go there, who are tired of holding up the roof and have tried for years to, to make it better. But neighbours mind, they like it, they want it to be there. But would this last? Many thought not. Um, the rise in no religion generation by generation was rendering this concept vulnerable. I myself thought that. It's not going to outlast my generation, born shortly after the Second War. What happened? Well, there were some unexpected developments. Now, here was a laboratory of vicarious religion. I felt I was living in it. April the 21st, uh, 2021, was the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh. Quintessential vicarious religion very few people doing it on behalf of so many. Doing it wonderfully well. It was exquisite, I thought. And you can, I can just see the queen in the corner. Of course, herself, like so many people in the country who had to take the, 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 the tragedy of a funeral or, or, or the ending of a life alone. It was hugely expressive. That was vicarious religion. 
And so it was again in September 2022. I hope you saw the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior because there again in the corner of Westminster Abbey, Jamie will vouch for that, um, that is a, a site of vicarious religion. The whole essence of that burial is vicarious. The, the church doing it and the king as the, 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 the key mourner uh, and the unknown warrior as, as the man laid to rest. That's exactly how it's expressed and it continues every year at the cenotaph. Would it endure in the everyday lives of people? Something very different happened, which disturbed me. In the growing literature on new forms of mostly right-wing politics, we know this as populism, I find reappropriations, I would call them misappropriations of vicarious religion. This is the culturalization of majority religion with the intention of exclusion, of excluding outsiders. And you can find examples all over Europe, strong ones in Poland or Hungary. You find it a lot in the Nordic countries, which is um, surprising, where right-wing parties have uh, developed and, and they claim their Lutheran churches as kind of, that is what symbolizes Norway or Denmark. Um, and you are finding what I think is quite a dangerous thing, which is the shell of religion without its theological core. Um, this is Max Weber's religious ethic, which is disappearing. And this is the result of secularization. And yet the religion is deployed against the outsider, often Islam, as the result of religious diversity. That's why you have to keep them together. I give you a reference there. It, it's a demanding read. Don't try reading that in bed. Um, and it, it's the German origin. And I, I did smile when I discovered the content still had unhalt at the top. I thought, well, it hasn't quite got into English. But I did learn a lot from it. Into this comes COVID. Here are my two starting points. Is religion, and you can make that minority religion if you want, because you can play with this at all sorts of levels, a risk or a resource in this respect? And that very simple question I owe to Linnea Lundgren, who's this, uh, whose doctoral thesis I examined <coughs> during COVID. Um, on, and we did it on Zoom, it was very successful. And she applied it to a much more rather different sort of question in Sweden, but I thought you can do so much with this. And then my second entry is going to be three options about how we deal with this or move forward. And Jamie asked me ages ago, you know, can you say something about how we move forward from this? Then we, of course, we were plunged into several other crises, um, uh, uh, but this was particularly thinking of COVID. And Thanks to one of the canons in Exeter, Deborah Parsons, she pointed me to this, um, which is a book about secular life rather than religious, saying you can think of it business as usual, or a great unravelling, or a new and creative experience. And we'll do that in a moment. So first, think about this. 
think of your experience of COVID. Were religions in your experience a risk? Were they at risk? Were certain kinds of religion at risk? What about the difference between perception and reality? Very briefly, I would say certain religions were at risk, but not because they were religions. They were at risk because of the, 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 the way they were living, or even obliged to live, often three-generational families, often in, in, in denser housing, care of the elderly was different, and COVID took its toll. They were definitely at risk. But nothing to do with the religion itself, except that it, it, it generated certain ways of life, many of which we think are admirable in terms of care of the elderly. There were higher levels of morbidity and mortality amongst certain groups. In certain cases, religions were deemed to be super spreaders. There was a case, of course, in China right at the beginning, and a, a, a case in France. Um, they did nothing wrong, nothing against the law, but just caught in a difficult situation and, and, and became very, very much criticized for being a big evangelical church, effectively. It wasn't their fault at all. We did have to think about the demography of churchgoers when we made plans about um, how to, to manage this. We have a predilection for singing. And again, I don't think it's singing that does the, 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 does the harm, but choirs do have a tendency to ride around in the same transport and to drink in the same pubs. And, and I think that probably helped. And when I discussed this with some of my French colleagues and reminded them of the shared cup, they, they, they were quite taken aback because that is not part of their wider culture. You can work really quite hard on that and, uh, uh, and think how this fits together. What tends to stay much more under the radar is that religions were a huge resource. Um, and the, the, the example I, I brought, and we won't go through it in detail because there won't be time, is um, from the Lancet. And I, I particularly took that because it's in a medical journal, a highly respected medical journal. It wasn't a little parish magazine or something to do with the churches. It, it was full on. And it, it was um, a wonderful article, the link is there, um, which showed or really demonstrated, it's only two pages, which is wonderful. I love articles that are only two pages. Um, and, and it um, really showed how, if you got your faith communities on side, you, would, you could do so much um, with them in terms of um, harnessing multiple faith groups, prominent community leaders, NHS staff, and it, to get the right kind of language, to get the right kind of access, to get the right kind of leadership roles. Um, uh, 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 and here is their conclusion page. Very short, too small for you to see, but it's all there. If you have vaccine hesitancy, use your faith venues, find your imam, and you're halfway there. And it's, in, I've just read another one, in fact, um, on an international, the data's coming out. It's absolutely prolific, the data coming out on COVID and faith communities now. I read a very good international one um, by somebody working at 
the Berkeley Center in, at Georgetown University in, in the US, says exactly the same things um, and also draws the attention of how they learnt from the experience of Ebola. Do ask me about that in questions if you want to know more. Here's this, um, I found, very interesting thinking about um, should we think of it as business as usual now? Should we just go back to normal? Well, that's crazy. That's not going to work. It's never going to be back where we were before. Forget it. But nor do we need to, to catastrophize it. Um, the great unraveling. You, you, you know, it's not, it, you can say that if you like, but it's not really very helpful. Um, and people do this, it, they do exactly the same thing with climate change. They pretend it isn't there, business as usual, we just carry on, we're fine. Or, you know, it's the end of the world, if not worse. Now that's not going to help either. How do we get the steps forward? What are the new and creative human responses? Finding a way forward, looking for handholds, what might these be? And I'm becoming increasingly convinced that to look at online worship and online activities as a creative tool is hugely positive. You can do it in all sorts of different ways. Um, and it's kind of obverse is attitudes to buildings because if you cling to your building, you're not going to go with online. And if you go all the way with online, you're going to have a much more cavalier um, attitude to your building. And, and this is why we tend to turn it into black and white, that this is right or wrong, good or bad. It's not. They are unique combinations. And I did an article with Hannah Alderson, who is the chaplain in, in the University of Exeter, about, this is very early on, um, March, July, uh, 2020, we were still finding our way. It's very, very early. And there were four examples that really came to my mind. Um, one was a national service to mark the end of Mental Health Awareness Week. It's done by Gina, Gina, that's it, yes, yes, who, who is now working in, in, in Exeter. She knew the subject, she was out of her health, public health background. And she did it beautifully. She started in her church with her dog beside her and she opened up the whole thing of um, mental, uh, mental Health Awareness Week. The, the number of people watching was enormous. The number of comments online was incredible. And I really ended that profoundly moved and thinking, why ever would you do it any different way in terms of reaching people and speaking to people? And of course, you've got wonderfully good people because it was online. They didn't have to get there. Then I looked at a range of cathedral worship. Cathedrals had a kind of head start because they had the gear to do it, largely. Um, but the one that struck me in Exeter, and these were all Exeter-based, was a single chorister singing um, the not um, Compline, on their own, in their own house, on every weekday night. And a wonderful intimacy of you and the chorister, although there could be 20,000 miles between you. So simple, so effective. The experiences of an urban parish church, it's the church I know well, I was astonished what they managed to do. 
what came out of the woodwork in terms of creativity, imagination, um, technical knowledge, um, and sharing uh, was just remarkable. Don't lose it. And they're still live streaming. And yesterday, I took greetings to a lady on her 91st birthday, and she said, please don't stop doing that. She's part of the congregation. She wouldn't be unless it was streamed. And the chaplaincy, Hannah writes in her own inimical style, um, the things they could and couldn't do. Very short. It's in theology, if you want to read it. Can you bear it? We turn now to the invasion of Ukraine. This is big. And this is where I'm picking up the material from the International Panel on Social Progress. Religion as such, Lucian and I, I think, would agree on this, rarely causes conflict. But if religion becomes, for whatever reason, one factor among others in a conflict, that may or may not happen, the situation is almost always more difficult to resolve. The stakes are higher. Religion is part of the problem. It's a risk, but it's also part of the solution, a resource. It's hugely complicated, this, hugely, hugely complicated. But you have to accept that President Putin believes that by invading Ukraine, he is defending Orthodox Christianity from the godless West. And the role of Patriarch Kirill in this enterprise is, for many of us, alarming. This notion of the Russian world, Ruski Mir, is much talked about. Now, is this an extreme example of culturalized religion? Exactly the same thing as I was talking about earlier, but in a rather more um, immediate and dangerous form. And I draw to your attention, I don't know how many of you have seen it, the um, answer to some of this, published in a de de declaration on the Russian world, there's the link if you want it, and, and written largely by a colleague of mine in Exeter, Brandon Gallagher, um, refuting this way of thinking and drawing in so doing on the Barman Declaration, uh, which is a Second World War document. Um, uh, and um, I do draw that to your attention in terms of a, a sort of counter, something counter, uh, a different way of thinking. But, but you've got this notion of culturalized religion, that religion is part of culture, part of Russian culture, and if you um, don't accept it, you don't belong. And you get this kind of image, which I think is, um, again, speaks volumes. It's, it's disturbing as far as we can see. We, 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 it's a difficult to get your mind around this. How do we... How do we react and respond to this? You know many Orthodox people who are profoundly Christian. How do they sit in this narrative? We have to note the fissures within Orthodoxy. If you have question on, questions on that, we, we will go to Luchan. Um, and we have to note the fault line between East Orthodox and West Catholic Europe, which goes through Ukraine. West Ukraine is very different. 
I can give you more information on that if you want to take it forward. But the bottom um, little paragraph with names that are rather difficult for us to say, so I'll let you read them, are showing exactly the same thing as I saw in COVID, which under the radar, the activity of many, many churches and organizations who are doing practical work to, um, uh, as it were, uh, help individuals and neighbors and neighborhoods. Um, a bit like the food banks we saw and still see all, uh, all over UK, um, they are the active help, the resource, but so often, so often under the radar and unnoticed. There's your resource and it's huge. That's a very interesting publication. It, 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 it's quite um, detailed, you need a little time to read it, but, but it tells you a lot. Here is something that I think is um, crucial to what I want to say, and it takes me back again to the notion of cultural competence and religious literacy. That is the incapacity of Western European minds, including our own, to grasp the continuing significance of religion in much of the modern world, including Russia, and the marked lack of cultural competence. And I think the religious dimension of the Ukrainian conflict is a case in point. Um, we need to grasp it. You, you, you might wish it wasn't there. I think I do, but it is. And because good social science demands that we see the issues from the point of view of the adversary as well as from our own. Only then can effective dialogue begin. Uh, and I don't see much of that imagination in the Western commentary on the conflict. To conclude, is our thinking, not to mention our tools and concepts, up to the task? I think the crucial and often missing link is imagination. I've often said that when I'm teaching. Um, if you like, the, the, um, the task of social science does various things. It provides the data, that's why I wanted to look at data, and explanation in fast, fast, as much as you can. But the real thing that brings it alive is can you imagine how it feels for the people involved? Can you put yourself in their shoes? And um, that's why I wanted with you to look at the questions, the data, the theories and explanations to deploy, is it risk or resource? And the policies that come out with a view, you know, we're looking for with a, um, you know, with a view to finding a resolution, but always using your imagination, always thinking, how does it look from somebody else's point of view? How do we get these people on side? How do we optimize the resource of religion? How do we minimize the risk? How do we talk to these people and understand their points of view? And here we go back to IPSP. Um, and with this was our conclusion of all that work we did together. There were 12, about 12 of us working together. Recognizing the power of religious ideas to motivate, of religious practice to shape ways of life, 
of religious communities to mobilize and extend the reach of social change, and of religious leaders and symbols to legitimate calls to action. So you've got ideas there, you've got a very profound, you've got a theology. It, it's informing you, it's, it's encouraging you, it's telling you things. Religious practice to shape ways of life, natural communities, um, which extend to, to practical assistance very easily. Religious leaders to inspire us. And we have ways of doing, ways of thinking. This is a very, very powerful resource. Hitch it to the wrong engine, and it's profoundly dangerous. Pull it in the right direction, or work with it for you know, the aims that we can agree on and, and, and think are honorable, will help even in a moderately secular country. So don't give up. There's lots of possibility, but be clear in your thinking. Is this a risk or a resource? Uh, in which direction do we push this um, very powerful resource that is at our disposal if we choose to see it? Thank you for your attention.